So the edition of Robin Hood that we're going to be reading is Robin Hood and Little John, or The Merry Men of Sherwood Forest by Pierce Egan the Younger. And if you've never heard of Pierce Egan, you are not alone. Um, You're going to hear periodically throughout this reading, you're going to hear this sound, right? And we're going to call that the arrow of annotation, because just taking a browse of this text, there are plenty of terms and people reference that have not carried through to the 21st century. So we're just going to take the time to look it up and find out what the word yeoman means, because everybody's a yeoman. You're a yeoman. I'm a yeoman. We're all yeomans back then. What's a yeoman? We're going to find out. But anyway, Pierce Egan the Younger is the son of, obviously, Pierce Egan the Elder, who was a uh, a pop culture writer in the mid-19th century, I guess, early 19th century. Pierce Egan the Younger, the writer of the Robin Hood book we'll be reading, uh, was an English journalist and novelist, according to Dr. Wikipedia. And he started writing this as a serial in 1838. It was published in book form in 1840, and we are reading the 1850 edition, which the preface assures me, and you, that is the, it's the definitive work. So before the preface, though, we've got a, uh, an inscription here. You know, a lot of, uh, you've seen it in, in modern contemporary books is, uh, you know, for so-and-so. The light of my life, or, you know, whatever, just, you know, for a person. You are a great teacher. Here we've got, uh, as a slight token of esteem and gratitude for many kind and affectionate services, the accompanying humble production in all sincerity of heart is inscribed to Benjamin Webster, Esquire. Get a room, Pierce and Benjamin. What's happening here? Apparently, Benjamin Webster, Esquire, it says underneath in parentheticals, lessee of the theater, Royal Haymarket, and Adelphi. By his highly obliged and attached friend, Pierce Egan. That's nice. I mean, it's a little, it's very, it's an intimate inscription for somebody who is not your wife. So real quick, arrow of annotation, uh, Benjamin Nottingham Webster here, according to Dr. Wikipedia, was uh, an English actor, manager, and dramatist. And under the early life section, it just says, Webster was born in Bath, the son of a dancing master. And really, that's all I need to know about it. So we'll just move on from that inscription and uh, carry on into the beginning of Robin Hood here. So the preface, we'll just kind of skim over it. The materials of a life of Robin Hood are but scanty, for although his fame is universal, the existing details of his life are but few, and so surrounded by the mists and obscurity of age that but little certain can be gathered. And then it goes on and he talks about how whoever this is, whoever wrote this preface, really not sure, um, presumably an editor or something like that, um, talks about how, you know, Robin Hood, was he, uh, was he an actual man? Was he a symbol? You know, was he, did he just, uh, was he a character of folklore? Did he represent a larger battle between the Saxons and the Normans and whatnot? Geoffrey Chaucer gets name checked in here. Uh, and then at the end, he talks about the actual book we'll be reading. So just for your information. In the following pages, the author had no material for the earlier portion of Robin Hood's life, but such as his imagination supplied him with. The latter portion embodies the exploits contained in the best ballads yet yet existing, and he trusts, from the extraordinary success with which this humble effort of a youthful pen has been attended, that in combining the imaginative with all he could obtain of the actual, he has not failed in his desire to please." which will be the judge of that, P. 
Pierce. But basically, this early stuff, he's just kind of spitballing. There's nothing, there's no info on it. Now, in uh, traditional movie lore for Robin Hood, he's Robin of Locksley, right? He's uh, he's always uh, the son of the the wayward son of Lord Loxley, who was a uh, gentry landowner of some repute around Nottingham, presumably. And uh, he goes he runs off to join Richard's Crusades, Richard the Lionheart's Crusades. Uh, and at this point, I'm just telling you the intro to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner. But this does seem to go across many, you know, Richard the Lionheart also appears in the 1973 animated classic Robin Hood by the Walt Disney Company. Uh, and he's where he's literally a lion. So in, in the end of this uh, preface, we go to, in conclusion, he wishes to make a special mention that this is the only edition which... Oh, that's curious. So this is, this is italicized and only is in all caps. In conclusion, he wishes to make a special mention, a special, E-S-P-E-C-I-A-L, a special mention that this is the only edition which he has revised with scrupulous care and without abridging, in many parts rewritten, such portions as appear to him weak or defective. So that was kind of him. So we're getting the best of the best here. So let's get into it. Robin Hood and Little John, or The Merry Men of Sherwood Forest by Pierce Egan the Younger. Cue the music. Robin Hood and Little John, or The Merry Men of Sherwood Forest, book one. And then we've got a, a quote here from an old ballad. It says, come live and listen, gentlemen, which so come live. I, I guess that's the, the kind of gentleman this book is seeking is the are the live ones come live or don't come at all. Right. Uh, that be of freeborn blood. I shall tell ye of a good yeoman which I'm assuming is also a yeoman or close to, but here it's just yeoman. His name was Robin Hood. R-O-B-Y-N-H-O-D-E. It is an old ballad. Old ballad itself is written in an, uh, an old-timey, old English kind of font. So take that for what it is. Chapter 1. In silence, then they took the way... All right, so this is a, another quote. We're starting with two quotes, back-to-back quotes. Curious, but okay. Chapter one, let's say when we do a quote, let's get some reverb on the quotes. Hello, testing. One, two, reverb, verb, verb, verb. Okay, good. In silence, then they took the way beneath the forest's solitude. It was a vast and antique wood through which they took their way, and the gray shades of evening or that green wilderness did fling still deeper solitude. Um, close to a rhyme, close to one, but that's by Shelley, I guess. So you take that to the bank. It says, says it right there. And then we, you know, now we go into the real, the real deal. What we're getting into it, folks. In the year of grace, 1161, during the reign of the second Henry, which, all right, arrow of annotation here. So Henry II is the daddy of Richard the Lionheart. And uh, one of the one of the great all time kings 
of England. Never lived in England that I'm aware of. I think he died, was born and died in France. Uh, but it was played by Sir Peter O'Toole in The Lion in Winter. Wherein uh, Richard the Lionheart was, was played by a young Anthony Hopkins, I think. But anyway... Uh, Henry II, famous for killing Thomas Thomas Beckett in uh, the Canterbury Cathedral, something like that. He was a real piece of work, this guy, Henry II. So anyway, it's his England that we are uh, journeying into here. So just be aware. Uh, during the reign of the second Henry, two travelers, travel-stained and mounted upon jaded steeds, which, okay, so jaded steeds makes does make me think of, like, were they... Kind of simple seeds, steeds, horses with attitude, that kind of thing. Uh, wended their way through the intricacies of the vast forest of Shirewood, or Sherwood, situated in Nottinghamshire. So right away, these are classic uh, uh, Robin Hood tropes coming at you fast and furious. Sherwood, Nottingham, it's great, I love it. It was an evening in March, chill and cold. The wind came in sharp, fitful gusts whistling now and anon, sighing through the young green leaves and old boughs of the huge trees. Now, just real quick, I don't know what the word anon means. I've seen it. We're going to look it up. Anon apparently means in a short time, at once, immediately. And anon, sighing through the young green leaves and old boughs of the huge trees. The sun was fast declining and was setting with a wild aspect. Deep red clouds clustered gloomily about him, and as he sunk behind the trees... Okay, so, again, we are just personifying the sun as a man. That's, that's your patriarchy right there, folks. Uh, clustered gloomily about him, and as he sunk behind the trees, long streams of gray mist rapidly uprose, giving dreary evidence of a stormy night. The travelers were sufficiently weather-wise to recognize in these indications an imperious necessity for a speedy arrival at their journey's end, or failing in that to obtain the nearest shelter. One of them, who rode in advance and appeared the superior, as well as the elder of the two, drew his mantle, in which he was enveloped, closer around him, and called to his companion to quicken his speed. The other obeyed the command with such right good will that he brought himself in a few minutes to a level with his fellow traveler. For a short time, they continued their journey in silence. At length, the elder traveler broke it by observing. The wind is increasing. I expect it will be a wild night. What think you, Ritson? Ritson here is the name. R-I-T-S-O-N. Ritson. It's not a term or anything. It seems to be a proper name. It looks threatening, my lord, replied Ritson. I would our steeds were not so miserably f***ed for it will... Alright, so hold on. So, in this context, f***ed must mean something uh, different from what maybe we would be used to, accustomed to. And here... Uh, it means to, to work until wearied, or to work hard. Uh, I would our steeds were not so miserably fagged, for it will be somewhat serious to be benighted in this forest. I trust you have no cause to expect an occurrence so unpleasant, returned his companion quickly. I imagined our journey was nearly at its close. You are the guide. You have not lost your road, I hope. Okay, so real quick, this guy... The Lord, he was the one who was riding out in front, and he's giving Ritson uh, a world of shit for possibly not knowing that they're going the right way or not. But, I mean, if you paid this tour guide, Ritson, to take you to a place, maybe you let Ritson go in front. Maybe you get over the Lordship just for the sake of travel, you know, for efficiency's sake. You want to make great time on these types of road trips. Rule number one, make great time. 
Oh no, answered Ritson, but if we do not make better progress before the sun sinks down and the storm comes up, I shall be likely to miss my road in the darkness. As it is, I have nothing but a quick eye and an imperfect recollection to guide me. And that's just what you want to hear from your hired guide. As yet, we have journeyed in the right path, and with good steeds, a short hour's ride would bring us to Head's Cottage. See if you cannot lash that lazy beast of thine into something like a pace, exclaimed his companion, spurring his horse sharply. My steed, although tired, lags not as does thine. All right, so this is a, you know, just vintage horse measuring competition, you know, whose horse, whose horse is pacing faster than the others. It's a couple guys on a road trip, you know, this is what's going to happen. Ritson complied with his master's request, and the tired beast, under the influence of whip and spur, cantered but wearily along. The wind had risen considerably. It howled and moaned like the wail of unquiet spirits. The sun had nearly vanished, and the darkness had increased apace, while the vast trees, which even in the broad daylight shed a somber hue around, now added to the gloom, and made the twilight almost night. Heavy drops of hail began to fall, and the indications of foul weather were being now rapidly realized. Are we near the dwelling of this yeoman yet? Asked the elder traveler. Okay, so arrow of annotation, yeomans. Just, we're going to hear a lot about yeomans, as previously indicated. A yeoman, a farmer who cultivates his own land, one of a class of lesser freeholders below the gentry, who cultivated their own land, early admitted in England to political rights. So a farmer, you know, he's got, got himself a piece of bottomland. He's making the best of it, but he does. He's not a lord. He's not a duke. He's not an earl. Certainly not a king, a prince, a jack, a queen. Are we near the dwelling of this yeoman yet? Asked the elder traveler. We are, my lord, replied his man. A quarter of an hour will bring us there. All right, so a quick 15 trot and we can make it. It is well, muttered the noble. This man, this head, is one on whom I may depend? You may, my lord, particularly when he believes the tale which your lordship has coined so admirably, replied Ritson. That's, um, that's taking a leap, maybe. Like this guy's story that he's going to dish out to the yeoman is so good. Uh, so action-packed, so filled with tension. It's a thriller, right? That he's going to do whatever the Lord wants, apparently, according to Ritson. Ritson is loving it. He is a tough, frank, honest fellow who has not two ideas of one thing. He believes right ought to be might and does his best to make it so. Whew! There was a blast, he cried. Okay, so whew, in this case, is spelled W-H-E-U-G-H. Whew! There was a blast. So let's all try to incorporate that, all of you writers out there, let's try to bring Gwil back as an exclamatory sort of bit of onomatopoeia, right? Gwil, there was a blast, he cried, as a gust of wind of tremendous force came tearing through the forest, followed by a vivid flash of lightning and a loud clap of thunder. There it is, my lord, there it is, cried Ritson with a joyful burst when the long peal of thunder had ceased. You see, that light twinkling through the trees, that comes from Head's house. It's now eight years since I saw that glimmering light from this spot. Ah, many a merry night have I passed with Gilbert Head. And in this case, I'm going to guess Gilbert Head is, uh, is possibly the name of the yeoman, rather than a description of something else. Uh, but it sounds like you go to the Head house, you're going to have a great time, according to Ritson here. 
You have the brat safe, interrogated the Lord. I have, my Lord, was the reply. He is fast asleep. Okay, so apparently there's a uh, there's a kid involved here. Not referenced in the first column of text, but we've got a kid uh, traveling with the two. Uh, he is fast asleep. I cannot see, my lord, why you should take all this trouble. If this boy is in your way, the quietest and most certain way to remove him would be to give him two inches of cold steel. It is a good time now. It will not take me a minute, and your lordship will thank me and remember me in your will for the deed. Okay, so Ritson, again, maybe maybe this is why he's not the lord, but this is his first instinct, is like, we're carrying this baby all, all the way around uh, the countryside here, and why are we doing this when we could just kill it? You could, you could ask me, you don't have to do it. I will do it. You just ask me to do it and I will make it so. And then you just pay me a little something. Just remember me. Remember me later. Interesting, Ritson. Maybe don't trust Ritson if you run into him. No, no, returned his lordship hurriedly. Well, good for him. Good for his lordship. Although he is in my way, and did he reach man's estate knowing his birthright, it would bring ruin on me. Yet I would not imbrue my hands in his blood. No, tis better as it is. I shall rid myself of him without being guilty or of so foul a crime as murder. Good on you, lordship. And if he never becomes aware of his right to title to the earldom, and he never can unless you disclose it, which it shall be my peculiar care to prevent, brought up to a yeoman's life, he will never miss it. Okay, so a lot of things happening here. So his lordship has no problems, no qualms with ditching his baby somewhere in the countryside uh and also is apparently <laughs> like is, is in so need of of uh assistance with this well okay so if you're and if you're ritson you get yeah, at this point your ears kind of kind of perk up right because uh i'm gonna take peculiar care to prevent you from talking about this it says to me that maybe it's time to dust off the old resume do some updating kind of get your name out there start browsing because you got you have to get away from his lordship at this point when he's talking about how he's going to be prioritizing making sure you do not talk about the baby you're helping him ditch just a thought anyway the kid brought up to a yeoman's life he will never miss it i shall enjoy that which i need and he will not be the worse for losing that which he never needed be it as you will my lord returned ritson coolly but for my part, I think a brat's life not worth a journey from Huntingdonshire to Nottinghamshire. Okay, so brief detour here into Huntingdonshire uh, does exist as a district. Uh, it looks like your traditional idyllic uh, British countryside. You've got canal boats and old bridges and manor houses and whatnot. Uh, weeping willow trees over the banks of some kind of river. So it's a real place. Uh, I don't know if that was the same thing in the time of Henry Henry the Deuce, but uh, at this point, it looks like, according to modern cartography, a little under 70 miles from Nottingham. So if you're going by uh, horseback, that's quite a journey. So I understand. I understand the issue. Anyway, back to Ritson here. This is the house, my lord, he concluded, as they arrived in front of a well-built cottage standing at the borders of the forest. It was a welcome sight to both, for their journey had been long and uh, been a long and weary one. It was therefore with a feeling of satisfaction that both dismounted, and Ritson knocked loudly for admittance, accompanying his blows by a series of shouts, which would, he anticipated, gain for them instant ingress. 
you know, the, the modern day equivalent of this would be leaning on the doorbell, just ringing that bell over and over and over again. I'm knocking, I'm knocking, and I'm shouting, and I'm shouting, hey, let me in. He's going to, I mean, if you're worried about the weather, and if the person inside was wor- so worried about people he wants to be inside, to be left outside of the weather, he would have built a porch, is all I'm saying. He would have a little roof over that doorway. If it's not there, just, uh, just knock, give a knock, right? Anyway, Ritson's yelling here. What ho! Neighbor Head! Goodman Head! He roared. Gilbert Head! A kinsman knocks! The blazing logs are on thy hearth, and the outside of thy door is to my front! A shelter! A shelter for the benighted! And in this case, benighted, B-E-N-I-G-H-T-E-D, not as in, uh, you know, knights, knights in shining armor, be knights in shining armor. Benighted, I think, it's just like, we gotta go to bed, you know, it's time to turn in. His appeal was answered by the deep-mouthed baying of hounds, who on the instant he had struck the door had rushed to it and poured forth a fierce clamor. And folks, we've all been there before. You could just hear the clicky-clacky of dog nails on the inside of that door coming through, right? Bumpus's dogs. A voice was soon heard quieting them, and then inquiring, Who knocks? Which is a very valid question for the, for good, uh, uh, the guy, uh, what's his name? Gilbert Head. It's a great question. Who is bothering me at this hour? Uh, who knocks? Thy kinsman, Roland Ritson, was the reply. Open quickly, good Gilbert. I have a companion with me. We are wet to the skin. Quick, quick. What? Roland Ritson of Mansfield? asked the voice. Aye, aye, the same. At least I was of Mansfield, returned Ritson impatiently. Which, is this the argument that you want to be having at this point? Yeah, I I was living at this place for a while, kind of crashing on couches, kind of bounced around for a while. I I had this basement apartment on Sycamore for a couple years, but meanwhile, it's hail out here, guy. Let me in. You forget, good Gilbert, the rain is coming down in torrents. Hear ye not the wind? No, I do not forget that tis a rough night. Neither forget I that you played me a scurvy trick at our last meeting, Master Roland, said the voice. Curious. Okay, so Master Roland, he's got a bit of a trickster, a prankster. He's punking Gilbert Head. But you have one with you, and the night is not over pleasant. Why, my hospitality shall not be questioned. Else beshrew me. All right, real quick. Beshrew? To beshrew somebody is to curse or invoke evil upon. So take that to the bank. Uh, but I would let you thump till your arm ached and shout till you were hoarse, ere I would let door of mine fly back at your command. Saying which, the speaker unbound the door and admitted the travelers. So apparently, whatever punking uh, Roland Ritson did to Gilbert Head has left a mark because, again, this has been eight years since that last happened. I guess they're not running into a lot of people at this point. Uh, It is the Middle Ages, right? Give me thy hand, Gilbert, said Ritson, with an appearance of frank cordiality. I acknowledge my offense, and am heartily ashamed of it. Okay, so... What could the prank be at this point? Yeah. I freely ask my pardon, and beg of thee to remember I was some eight years younger than I stand now before you, and that much wilder. Besides, good Gilbert, you had your revenge on me. You had your revenge of me. Is that, mm, interesting. And so I had, replied Gilbert, laughing. <laughs> it's ill sport to draw a shaft on a dead buck, and so there's my hand. It's a curious turn of phrase. It's ill sport to draw a shaft on a dead buck, so there's my hand. So apparently the revenge he had was of such quality that uh, 
Roland Ritson is the equivalent of a dead deer. Why would I uh, shoot a dead deer with an arrow? He's already dead, right? So that's how nailed for the punking Ritson was by Gilbert Head. Oh, welcome to my humble roof, Sir Stranger, he added, turning to Ritson's companion. Judge not harshly of my good will, that an oaken door stood sometime between you and my hearth after you had asked for admittance. So Gilbert Head is very hung up on his reputation as somebody who will give you uh, food and shelter, apparently, which just uh, if you're out and about and you need shelter, if you need to be night somewhere, just know that you can exploit his goodwill. He's a, he's a decent man, this Gilbert Head. But some rude neighbors in the forest here who would be hand in glove with whatever they can lay claw on without consulting the inclination of the owner, make it needful to trust to bars and bolts for security, which is denied to a strong arm and stout heart when opposed to numbers. And a difference between me and my kinsmen there, which occurred some years since, made me tardy in bidding ye welcome, which I now do heartily and truly. Ah, you have steeds with you. We must see to their comfort. Ho, Lincoln, he shouted, and a stout serving man in the garb of a forester made his appearance. Here, lead these steeds to the shed and see them well served, he cried. The man obeyed without uttering a word or scarcely glancing at the newcomers. Gilbert Head led the travelers to the fire, and a female, about thirty, with pretty features and altogether of a pleasing exterior, met them and bade them welcome. This was the wife of Gilbert Head and Ritson's sister. Oh, okay. This is the first time, a couple pages in here, the sister is never mentioned. Like, that would be the first thing I would tell my lordship when he starts pressing me for some answers. It's like, look, it's my sister. My sister lives here. It's cool. She's cool. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Don't worry about it, bro. Why, Margaret, cried her brother. Eight years have not added much weight to thy brow, which is what every woman longs to hear. Thy forehead is as clear and thine eye as bright as when Gilbert came a-wooing. I have been well and very happy, she replied, bestowing a glance of affection upon her husband, who returned it with a hearty kiss. All right, hey, here we go. You may say we, Maggie girl, for we have been very happy, cried the honest yeoman, his eyes dwelling upon the pleasing face of his wife with a look of intense satisfaction. And thanks to thy sweet temper, there has been no sullen looks nor rough words to mar our peace. But come, kinsman, doff your cloak. And you, sir, the rain hangs upon thy cloth like dew on the leaves. Bustle, Margaret, make the f***s blaze. And in this case, presumably we're talking about a bundle of sticks, right? All right. A hot supper shall soon drive out the cold which the rain has worked in. The worthy couple moved themselves with a good will and hastened to place materials for a hearty supper upon the table. Great service at the head house, just saying. While thus employed, Ritson took the opportunity of throwing his cloak from his shoulders and discovering a sleeping child resting upon his arm, wrapped in a cloak of fine blue cloth. The face of the infant was of great beauty, round and well-formed, and the clear skin, ruby lips, and red cheeks exhibited the appearance of extreme health. So, this baby's not sweating the Middle Ages. Uh, let's check back with the baby in a couple years and see how much rotting has taken place. Because I think, you know, people are, you live into age 40, you're lucky, right? Gotta be. 
Uh, when Ritson had quite disengaged himself from his mantle and disposed the child to as much advantage as circumstances would allow, he turned to his sister and, assuming a tone of voice which would best answer his purpose, said, Margaret, come hither. I have a present for thee. You shall not say that I returned after eight years' absence empty-handed. See what I have brought thee. Oh, Margaret, you are in for a surprise. Lucky Margaret. Holy Mary! ejaculated the astonished Margaret. Head out of the gutter, folks. She's ejaculating. It's not a big deal. As she saw the child. A child! Why, Roland, where, where got you this? Is it thine? What an angel! Oh, Gilbert, look at this sweet child! Why, what now? exclaimed Gilbert Head, as he looked upon the child, with almost as much amazement as his wife. A sleeping babe! What, Roland, at your old tricks again, eh? See, again, Roland Ritson, he's punking, and he's porking, possibly. Or have you turned nurse in your reformed state? It's strange for you to be scouring the country on stormy nights with an infant in your arms. What's in the wind, lad? Out with it, I know thee, Roland. Now, I've seen this babe. I am well assured it was not a mere matter of being benighted that brought you hither. Out with it, Ritson. Let's have the worst and best. So, Gilbert Head, again, you don't become a yeoman with your own uh, yeoman fields and yeoman house and yeoman table full of yeoman supper without, you know, being able to read some character, right? So he knows that his brother-in-law is, uh, is a dirty dog. You shall have all I know in good truth, replied Roland. This child is none of mine. Yeah, right. Nor of anyone's now. It is an orphan. But this friend of mine is the present owner. He knew the family and the whole story, which he shall tell you. Ah, uh, so this is maybe we're going to get the story that was uh, given such rave reviews by Ritson out on the road. We'll, we'll find out, I guess. Uh, but if you have Christian charity, you will spread the supper table and say, Sit ye down and eat and drink your fill. And to what there is, ye are kindly welcome. I mean, I know they, they are kinsmen, but uh, a little presumptive on Roland's part. But, but whatever, a little pushy, is all I'm saying. Here, Margaret, take the boy. My arm has been his cradle these two days. Uh, hours, I mean. And my arm aches. Okay, so he's, he's already slipped, which, I mean, again, dust off the resume. Time, time to update, because you got his lordship is none too pleased, I guarantee you. Uh, but there is some uh, duplicitous uh, doings here. When you say a couple of hours rather than a couple of days, you know. The sweet innocent shall not stay thy stomach from its feast, said Margaret, taking the child from her brother's arms, while an expression of pleasure passed over her features as she received him and gazed on the sweet calm features reposing in gentle slumber. She carried him gently up a flight of stairs, which led from the room they were in to her bedroom. She placed the sleeping infant upon the bed, and covering him with her own scarlet mantle, which decorated her fair person when she went to mass or to holiday treats. Holiday treats? Delicious. Possibly. Not sure. Returned to the room she had previously quitted. She found her husband bantering her brother and the stranger alternately upon the possession of the child, which the former took in good part, but the latter rather stiffly, although he strove to conceal the dislike he felt to the honest yeoman's freedom of speech. Classic lordship, right? A little, little uncomfortable hanging out with the earthier side of the tracks. 
The supper passed away without an occurrence worthy of remark, and with little conversation, save a few questions from Gilbert and Margaret to her brother, which is just natural. I mean, it's like you can't just barge your way in here, eat all my fucking dinner, and then and and not converse with me. I'm just picturing these two uh, road-weary baby-toting travelers stuffing their gobs uh, in complete silence, being rather rude. But again, it is the Middle Ages. Uh, a few questions from Gilbert and Margaret to her brother, which he saw fit to answer only as it would serve his present purpose. At length, when Gilbert began to entertain serious notions of retiring for the night and to think in what way he could dispose of his guests to their satisfaction, the noble broke the silence, which had reigned for a short time by remarking to his host. So, right, <laughs> to set the scene a little bit more clearly, Gilbert heads. And his wife, uh, Margaret, are kind of like exchanging couples glances, as couples do. And uh, sort of like, what are we doing? When When is the night over? Like, we hang around. Like, they're not saying, they're eating all the food, but they're not talking to us. Maybe we do one of the fake uh, sort of exaggerated yawn. Oh, it's getting late, right? It's getting kind of late out here in the, the edge of the forest. Anyway, th thankfully, this awkwardness is broken by the noble. Let's see what he's got to say. You were making some observations respecting the infant which your relative brought hither tonight and consigned to the custody of your wife. You're welcome, by the way. Uh, I am in a position to satisfy your curiosity, and as I have a proposition to make which will affect his future welfare, I wish to put you in possession of all matters connected with him. Which is kind of him. I mean, he's just telling them outright, we're ditching this baby with you. You're going to take this baby. His father was a soldier of good family, a most dear and intimate friend of mine, and a comrade in arms. We served for some time together in France under the present King Henry in Normandy, Aquitaine, Poitou, and many other places, and again a few years since in Wales. While in Normandy, he contracted an intimacy with a young girl, a native of Auvergne. They were married. He brought her to England with him, but he could not acknowledge her as his wife on account of the prejudices of his family, who were high, proud, and valued themselves upon their pure descent from a Saxon monarch. Okay, so this is a tale as old as time. Guess who's coming to dinner, right? Like you, you, you laying with a Auvernian? How dare ye? That's, you know, mom or dad, right? Presumably. I'm sure there was a big blow up in the kitchen about this one. Uh, but unfortunately, okay, so returning to the, to the story, the poor girl died in giving birth to the child, and my friend lost his life about ten months since in the war on the frontiers of Normandy. I was by his side when he received his death wound, and his last thoughts were upon his child. He gave me the name and address of the female, to whose charge he had committed it ere he quitted England, and begged me, by the remembrance of our old friendship, for his sake, to foster and cherish it. I promised to do so. So, mm, okay, nobleman. Uh, you, when you promise to take care of the baby, that doesn't include dropping off the baby with your buddy's in-laws. Uh, you know, it's just not, It's I don't quite think that's what he had in mind when he was uh, dying and uh, g giving you, you know, making you the godfather, essentially. But again, the Middle Ages, what do I know? I promise to do so, but good yeoman, I am a rough soldier without kith or kin. Okay, right away. So we know kin is family, but kith... Let's find out what kith is. Let's just get it out of the way. 
acquaintances, friends, neighbors, or the like, persons living in the same general locality and forming a more or less cohesive group. All right, Kith, you buddies, you people, you peeps. Without Kith or kin, passing a checkered life in the camp and field, what then am I to do with a tender babe, even though I passed a soldier's word for its health and safety? In this strait I advised with thy kinsman, and he bethought him of thee. He said thou hadst a young wife, had no family of thine own, were trustworthy, honest folk, and would do kindly by the boy, if, on a promise of being well paid, you consented to take charge of him until he is of an age to follow me. Should I be spared of him until he is of an age... Oh, should I be spared to the field and emulate the deeds of his brave sire? What say you, honest friend? Shall it be as I wish? My pay and my share of spoil hath made my income good. I can spare a round sum from it yearly to pay for his keep. What say you, pretty dame? You will not say me nay to nurture a fair child, albeit it is none of thine. Oh, okay, I understand. Okay, so you will, you're not going to say no to loving this kid, even though it's not yours. That's uh, that's an official translation there. You're welcome. A pretty plaything for thee, Margaret, by St. Peter, and pin money to boot. Think of that, kinswoman, chimed in Roland Ritson. Roland, take a fucking seat, all right? Let the nobleman do his work here. We are down to brass tacks, and he's working on payments. Maybe you butt out a little bit. Margaret looked at her husband, and he looked at her, but neither spoke. You hesitate, said the noble, a frown gathering on his brow. My proposition likes you not. In good truth, said the yeoman quickly, it likes me well, for since it hath not pleased the Holy Mother to grant us bantlings. Bantlings? What'd you call me? Bantlings. A, a bantling. A very young child. All right, well, there you go. Bantlings. So they don't have any. Until tonight. Uh, I should be well pleased to fondle one. Hey, come on now, Gilbert. Well, relax. To bring him up to good thoughts and honest deeds, though he be not son of mine, but it rests with Maggie. If it likes her, we will cry a bargain, sir stranger. What say you, girl? I am well content the child stay with us, Gilbert, for as this good soldier truly says, what should he do with a young and tender babe? being kinless and passing his life in the rough scenes of war. It is a sweet child, and pity indeed t'would be that harm should come to it. Let him be as though he were our own, until you, sir, shall think it time he change a forest home for one of thy choosing. Very generous. I'm thinking if I am the head family, like, look, he comes in here, he's going to do what we want him to do. Like, you don't just drop him off. That being said, there are payments being made. Oh, man, this gets really, really sticky. Let's not fall on one side of this argument or another, just for the, the sake of all of it. Our thoughts and wishes jump together in this as they do in all things, dear Maggie, said her husband affectionately to her. Then turning to the traveler, he continued. Well, sir soldier, it is a bargain. We keep the boy until he is of an age to give you no trouble. And when that time arrives, you will see we have dealt honestly by him, to which I pledge my faith. And there's my glove on it, he concluded, drawing one of his gauntlets from his belt and throwing it on the table. Oh, I like that. We should bring that back. Throw your gauntlet down. And I always thought that was sort of a, an invitation for fisticuffs. Uh, but perhaps, mayhaps, this was uh, what you say when you're, when you're ready to, to form a pact. 
I accept the token, returned the traveler, taking up the glove and giving one of his own in exchange. Now, that's curious. So the Middle Ages never really addressed in many of the uh, motion pictures I've ever seen. Uh, but presumably just a bunch of people riding around with mismatched gloves uh, due to all the compacts and concords that they have, have made. He then drew a small bag from a pocket in his doublet, adding, Here is a sum in gold pieces, which each year I will transmit to you, be I at what quarter of the globe I may, for this, for his support and clothing. This proposition met with strong opposition on the part of the good yeoman, who stoutly refused to receive a fraction of it. Now, again, Gilbert, listen, you're going to take the kid in, like, get some support if you can get it, right? Otherwise, don't, certainly do not give him back. But the friendly altercation was at length terminated by a proposal from Margaret to receive the sum and put it by each year until the boy quitted them. It would then make a pretty purse to begin the world with. Now, this is smart. You're going to put it into a trust, right? This is what we do. This is what we do for our children. We take care of them. Um, this was agreed to. A few arrangements were made and the parties separated for the night. When Gilbert had rose next morning, his first act was to visit the shed. Of course, I mean, that, isn't that what we do first and foremost, all of us? If we're going to the bathroom, getting a cup of coffee, got to go out to the shed. Got to go see what's happening out there. Uh, to see that his visitors' steeds had met with good treatment. He found them well-groomed, but still laboring under the effects of long and hard riding. They were noble steeds of high breeding and excellent value. Nice. Gilbert had possessed two horses, and it was with something like a smile he turned to compare these high-bred cattle with his own forest nags. To his surprise, he missed them. They were absent from the stable, and as he knew none connected with his establishment, for he was a keeper of the forest, dare take either or both without his permission, as he kept them for his own especial riding, his mind misgave him that his guests had not stayed for leave-taking." Which, I guess in this context, leave-taking is just goodbyes. Saying your goodbye, hug, hugging it out, right? Until next time. Happy trails. Leave-taking. He sought the chamber in which he led them to repose and found it empty. They had gone ere daybreak. There is something afloat that should not be, he muttered. Or they would not have left in this strange manner. Well, to be fair, Gilbert, they did just drop off this strange baby without any papers or anything like that. And they're just giving it to you, paying you, to, in fact, paying you to take it. Like, yeah, something strange is afoot or afloat, as you would say and have said. Uh, at least they would have not been dishonest. Uh, at least they have not been dishonest. Everything is as I left it. And so far from ro robbing me, they have given me a bag of gold, exchanged two blood horses for a pair of sturdy forest nags, but common brutes in comparison with those I have in exchange, and I have a pretty boy thrown into the bargain. Uh, and we're talking about the baby, folks. We're not talking about, like, I got a pretty boy thrown into the bargain. No, no. Tis no picking and stealing they have been after. There is something in which this child is concerned, of some particular importance, that has made them journey long and wearily to seek me out. Well... Be it what it may, I will do my best by the boy and turn him out something like what a man should be, if wicked blood be not in his veins. And if it be, the fiend himself wouldn't make a stout yew bow out of a broken reed. 
the fiend himself. I mean, presumably we're talking about the devil here. I think the devil's running rampant during this era uh, in geographical location. Um, and again, he's uh, Gilbert is taking all of this in really good stride. He's just like, well, what are you going to do? I got this kid now. We're going to do it. He returned to the room below and found his wife seated by the fire, nursing the little stranger. Now, here's a question. Uh, I j- just common sense. I'm not going to know. But regarding nursing, ladies out there, maybe you can write us in info at the uh, I mean, it seems quick to me. Is it just is it is the biology that refined to where it's just like there's a baby around. You just start producing. I don't know. I don't know. He communicated to her the unceremonious departure of their guests, and she, who had no very high opinion of her brother's principles, <laughs> classic brother, I, I, you know, hey, we've, we've all got sisters, right? We, we are those brothers, I understand, could give no explanation of their singular conduct. It served them for some speculative conversation. It is very odd, concluded Margaret, after a speech of some length, which is not gone into here. What, were the, what was the deal like? Listen, if somebody, if my brother comes with another baby, don't you fucking dare say you're not going to take the money. Uh, but uh, we don't know. That's left up to the, the, the mists of time, right? It is very odd, concluded Margaret, that this stranger and my brother should have quitted the house without even letting us know where to find them in case we need their presence or even by what name we should call this little dear child. Yeah, it's odd, Margaret. The whole scene is odd, but so... Maybe this could have occurred to you at some point last night. And also, what name? We don't even know what the thing is called. The baby's called. That's crazy. You have a whole conversation. You have a whole. You're watching these guys wolf down all your food for hours. And then you're talking about, you know, bandying about, you know, bag of gold here, bag of gold there. Like, no, I don't want it. Yeah, you should have it. You never asked what the fucking kid's name was. Uh, that's on you, head family. Just saying. I have thought so too, answered Gilbert, but since we know not whether he has had a name given to him by his godfathers and godmothers, we will even stand sponsors to him ourselves and call him by the name of my dear brother, whom I loved so well, he who died some years since, even Robert, Robin, as I used to call him, heaven rest his soul. And so the child was named Robin Head, or... As in, after times it has become corrupted, Robin Hood. Robin Head? No way, man. It's Robin Hood. Robin of the Hood. I've seen the movies, Pierce. Anyway, that's the end of chapter one. So, uh, a thrilling origin story here about Robin Hood. I'm not sure that I buy it. Robin Head. Um, but there it is. That is as, as Pierce would have it. So, you know, cliffhanger. Does Robin Head, Robin Hood, does he grow up? You know, at this point, he's just a babe. He's just a pretty boy. But we'll find out next time, Chapter 2, on Chapter chapter 11's special presentation, Unemployed Robin Hood, here on the Sauropod. Thank you for listening, and good evening. Good night. Be nice yourself. (laughs) 